Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast, where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income, and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach, and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest, and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day and welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast. I'm Pete Wargent. I'm here as always with Stephen Moriarty. G'day, Steve. Hi, Pete. So, well, I'm really well, actually. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're stuck, in, you're stuck in the UK somewhere, so, you know. Yeah, hence <laughs> another socially distanced podcast, but in this case, uh, um, very distanced. Uh, 60,000 cases today in the UK of COVID, so things are, the oh, lockdown wow. works really well. Yeah, it could be, uh, could be stuck on the socially distanced uh, podcast for a little while yet, so let's see how we go. Yeah. So we're going to wrap up with another couple of episodes on bubbles and what you should do in a bubble. And I was reading um, an article from Jeremy Grantham that you shared on the late stages of a bubble, and he's very clear that this is it's a rerun effectively of maybe not 1929, but most likely 99 with the tech flavour. And with every passing month, he's more and more convinced that that's what we're seeing. Um, is that a reflection of what you think uh, markets are, are doing this year? Yeah, pretty much so. The Pretty much what I've been thinking for about the last two years. The more I'm reading about the, you know, from the, the sort of historian's Guys like Jeremy Grantham and Howard Marks and the sort of silence of Warren Buffett in the sense that Buffett never talks much about bubbles because I think he has a, you know, he has some serious sway on the market. So Buffett tends to say, oh, the market's okay if interest rates stay low. And I think that then leads to the obvious question of, yeah, well, you know, do interest rates stay low? And that's probably for another time. But Generally, yeah, like the stuff we talked about in the first two podcasts, you know, what are the characteristics are all just, it's seriously crazy in my mind in terms of, and it's it's not just in stock markets, you know, the property markets in some places to me just look as crazy. And America is one of those, again, that, you know, house prices are growing by 7 to 10%. Germany, I think, was, you know, looking at some sort of property bubble and stuff. Yeah, um, Auckland prices are up 15% in 2020, which is pretty impressive for a year where the economy was shut down for a fair period of time. International travel has all been shut down and yet uh, the market's done 15% in, a, in an already red-hot market. That's pretty pretty big stuff. I was in the 2000 dot-com era, you know, and I sort of keep saying to people for the last sort of three months, it's even worse than what it was, you know, because I'm, I, I, you know, you try to tap your memory and say, gee, you know, was it this bad in 2000 or, you know, was it worse than that or is it better than that? Honestly, looking at it, it, it looks worse and it's, it's saying something. And the hard part about it is 
how long, and, and, and Grantham mentioned this in his letter by saying, the hard part is, you know, what I'm seeing is even the last bears, um, and I'm bearish, are, are succumbing. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, of course, but there's the people who are saying, oh, all right, all right, you know, I give in, Bitcoin might be the future of money. All right, yeah, okay, look, Tesla's at 1,000 PE, but look, okay, there could be something in it. That's when you look at it and go, we're really, really bubbly uh, to a point of, you know, I, I can't see how it ends well. Yeah, so let's, well, today we're going to talk about what should serious investors do during the late stages of a boom or bubble. So I think it was Howard Marks who sort of articulated that there's no no safe way to participate in a bubble-only danger. So I guess you've got two choices. You take a momentum view and, and effectively speculate on the price movement. In, in other words, ignore the valuations and just trade the tape, essentially, or, or you desist and you assume that mean reversion will eventually bring, bring markets down some way down some kind of normality. Is that effectively the two choices you've got? You either speculate or desist? I think so, Pete. The The critical thing with markets and investing, as you know, even if it's property or art or, you know, vintage cars, is a lot of timing or how, do you, how you look at time. I've found over the years you can speculate and be in a bubble. The, the hard part is when do you get out of it? You know, um, do you start rebalancing you know, late in the process or, you know, so you, again, you've got to have a, you've got to have a philosophy and a sort of framework and a plan to do it. But you, you're right in saying you've got basically momentum, which says, all right, I'm just going to hang in. The hard part about that is when you sell out, even as, and as Grantham said, you know, they were three years too early on the Japanese bubble. You know, I've been predominantly on the sidelines for about two years. It's really, really difficult to do that and and sort of, you know, get out close to the top. The other one is you can do the mean reversion strategy, which is basically saying, well, I'll just sit out and I'll wait for the market to crash and then I'll get back in. The problem with that one, of course, is it becomes really, really painful watching everybody get rich and, you know, I mean... I saw there a, a few weekends ago, I think Bitcoin entered the weekend at 25 and entered out on Sunday night at 32 or something, you know, like just just mad, crazy stuff. I think the trick in a sense is, as I've done it before is you have to, the more it goes higher, the more often you rebalance. And what I mean by that is you simply take more and more off the table and accept that you know you'll probably miss out on some gains, but you'll you'll pocket most of the money. Most of the problem with the young investors or inexperienced investors with bubbles is they don't realise it's a bubble, and so you know you see all these guys saying you know Bitcoin's going to be the future or Tesla's going to be the future, and just through doing the sheer numbers on it, it doesn't make any sense. But that's, that's not how you see it when you're in a bubble. It basically, to me, comes down to timing because fundamentals don't work. The really experienced investors basically know that you have to stay in 
because as Grantham said, if you don't stay in, the clients leave. And so therefore you 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 have to stay in and basically talk about, you know, no, 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 it's not a bubble, all while believing it is actually a bubble. Or you can do what some of the the value investors do, which is just say, well, look, I'll just sit out of the market and wait for it to, you know, return to some sense of valuation. But then the clients leave. Yeah, I guess that's one of the great advantages you have as a private investor, right? You don't have to participate in anything. This year I bought, or in 2020, I should say, as we're recording this in January, I was out of the market almost completely, a little bit early like yourself. The market crashed. I didn't get back in on March the 23rd, as a lot of people claim to, and you know, I get various snarky emails saying, oh, you missed the bottom and stuff. Well, not necessarily. You know, there's there's other investments out there. I bought a, a property. You can invest in all sorts of different things. You don't have to be in stocks all in or not in. It's interesting, actually. You, you talked about the tech bubble there. And one of the things about that, as the name implies, it was largely driven, not completely, but largely there was a big boom in internet-type stocks or anything that was vaguely tech Related, but some of the other sectors weren't as impacted. So, is this some, is this a strategy that people can use in bubbles, looking at value type investments like energy or potentially cheaper countries? Um, and is there a difference between sector bubbles and country bubbles? The thing a lot of people worked out negatively, if I could, or impacted on them negatively, is that in a lot of value investors in 07 didn't pay attention to macro stuff. And I shouldn't say they didn't pay attention. They weren't believers in the macro stuff. So they had this bottom-up investing philosophy, which was pick a good company, earnings will deliver over time, and, you know, you'll be fine. Don't worry about the volatility. And that's sort of right to a certain extent. But you've got to remember, you know, when stocks crash 30 40 50%, You've got to double, you know, at 50%, you've got to go back 100 to get back to where you were. That doesn't happen overnight in the stock market. So you can spend a lot of time underwater if you don't continue to invest through the the downside or, you know, close to the bottom. And so what you find is because we we now know that, and I think we always have, that, the you know, when everything hits the fan, then the correlations go to one. What you find is you you have to make this decision in your portfolio about holding good companies, even if they go down 50%. You can say, all right, well, um, I'll buy more of it, but it's it's still a big ask if you're buying at every 10% fall or even some good companies like Microsoft spent 13 years getting back to know, getting back to where they were in the in the year 2000. Um, but their earnings were fantastic. So, you know, I defy anybody to wait 13 or 14 years to get back to square and be comfortable with it, I, um, particularly with a company that doesn't even pay a dividend. So Interesting, actually. You, know, you mentioned Japan there, and one of the observations for people who lived through that, I know you spent many years living in Japan, is that the market didn't really crash per se it just sort of started falling and then it just never really stopped and I, I think even in 2000 it many months after the peak I don't think people really realized that it was a bursting bubble in tech I think it was uh, it was some time before 
the, the gains started to gather pace. And then it was only really when the market was down 60, 70, 82% that people were, you know, really understood just how far these things can go. Yeah, the, the 2000 bubble um, basically declined over three years. And the first year, if I remember correctly, was only about 11%. Um, and it picked up from there. So it's very, very difficult. It's easy, I suppose, in hindsight to look back and go, oh, you know, you could have seen that it was going to fall. But you, that's not the way you see it at the time. You know, you, I mean, if you have a look at uh, 2020, you know, March, uh, February fell about 35%. Then it bounced 35% back in March and it ended up the year being up 12% in the, in the, in the U.S., there's a, I'm seeing this a lot, advisors going to people, oh, you know, you'll miss out on, you've missed out on the rebound. It's absolute garbage because they didn't have their clients in cash in February to miss the 35% decline. And if you look at the ASX, it basically went nowhere over 12 months. So the idea of, you know, the hindsight bias or the sort of perma bulls that just continue to, you know, just keep buying stocks and you'll be fine is a really, in, in my sense, a really naive view about how important the macro stuff like valuation actually is. And so what, I can, what I'm saying is you can have, a, a, you know, a great uh, portfolio worth of fantastic companies, but they can still suffer the downturn for a long time. And so, you know, it's, it's pretty tough to sit there going, I've got this really great portfolio Oh, yeah, it's just down 40%. But, gee, I absolutely know that it's full of, you know, it's chock full of quality companies. Um, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't really happen like that, you know? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think sometimes people have a different understanding of how they will react in a downturn. I think it's, you know, it's fine for people to say, well, I'm just going to buy and hold, hold through a downturn. But sometimes the pain becomes too much if you... If you if you really you know if you buy at the wrong time in the cycle and just watch the market falling month in month out, it's it's harder thing it's a harder thing to do than it is to actually say. What about um, taking short positions? I know you sometimes use options or take short positions. So is that something that people should do in a bubble? You can do. It's shorting is pretty tough. Uh, to be quite honest, the best way to short the market in 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 a sense, is um, the same way that you build a portfolio on the way up is to do it, you know, with a sort of a systematic approach. Um, so you can you can you can buy options or leveraged ETFs or even just bear ETFs these days, and ju but just go into them on a, a systematic basis. It's quite tough, really, because the market, as we know, generally just goes higher, and so you you've just got this inbuilt. Uh, bias that it's it's going to go higher. The other thing too is, you know, like I, I, I can tell you, I've been short the US market for the last two years. I was very uh, fortunate in February last year uh, where I doubled down on my shorts and made a lot of money. Most of that's gone back in and I'm now, you know, and I, I started shorting again and I'm back where I was originally. So, you can short, but it's really hard, and that's at the market level. I, I don't short companies because I think the euphoria, um, even with something like Tesla, my experience has been that you can look at something and if 
it's it's like a, a psychological thing. You know, you, you look at something and if you use the CAPE ratio, you go, wow, you know, the CAPE's at 33. Man, the market's way overvalued. I'm going to plunge in and short the market. But the problem is, as we know, in the in the bubble of 2000, uh, you know, the CAPE ratio got to 44. You've got to have, you know, the height of a rhino um, or you've got to basically have had a, you know, a heart bypass to actually, you know, withstand the pain. Um, and even then, it, it it doesn't, you know, it doesn't pay off uh, all the time. So it's a, you can short it. It's, it's very, it's very high risk. For those who are not that experienced, you're probably better off just sitting out and, you know, biding your time. That's, that's what I think is probably the best approach for most people. So in terms of, we've just talked a bit there about the history of bubbles and uh, I guess you've got a few years on me, so you've probably got a bigger, <laughs> a bigger sample to uh, draw from. I mean, I've being a Brit, I've lived through some quite spectacular booms and busts, uh, largely in credit and, and the property market. Not, not so much in London, but in some of the regional markets have really taken some hammerings in. You know, it's just a boom-bust cycle economy, the UK. But in terms of um, your experience and from drawing on history, how do bubbles typically end? Do they, do they just fade away? Do they go with a bang? Is it different for a sector or a country or individual or individual stocks. So any sort of takeaways there for people? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, Pete. Property bubbles, I think, in my experience, which is limited, tend to deflate in two ways, which is they, they, they crash or that they, they go nowhere over, you know, 10 or 15 years. And so what you end up with is a 100% return that gets whittled away over the next 15 years to actually the point where you go, oh, in actual fact, we haven't made anything. And that's the same for stocks. It depends where the bubble is. If you've got a country bubble, they tend to end uh, badly. Uh, sorry, badly. They tend to end with a bang. Um, the the reason why I'm, I'm so pessimistic on the, the current US market is because everything's expensive. Um, if you have a look at the 2000 bubble, what you find is the NASDAQ took three years overall to lose about 80-odd percent or 82 percent. But in a lot of cases, the, the bubbly sector fell, whereas other sectors didn't fall that much because they weren't as expensive. And so, in other words, it's a, it's a little bit like we got at the moment where, you know, you've got the nifty five, as I call them, um, you know, Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, Google and others that are basically completely blown out of the water. If you have a look at the returns in 2000, you find that things like financials and consumer staples actually did quite well. So in other words, they they went against the tide. You'd sort of expect that with consumer staples because, you know, you don't give up buying bread just because there's a stock market crash. You basically got to the point, I think, in 2002 where they basically all went down. Um, and so, again, this feeds back into that idea of the, the correlation being really, really important. This time around, I, the old adage, I think, is, you know, the, the, the faster it rises, the faster it falls. And I think that's probably pretty fair 
across most bubbles. The thing that makes it end with a bang or a whimper, um, and this is where I think property and stocks are a little bit different, is in stocks you have a, a you have a greater use of leverage, and not not in the sense of uh, like a property you use leverage if you if you borrow. But it's a longer term thing, you know. It's a twenty to twenty five year yeah, loan. You're going to get a, called on. Uh, you know, if you're using a CFD in an individual stock, uh, you're not going to stick around too long. If that if the market moves ten percent, twenty percent against you, you're not going to be <laughs> that leverage ain't going to be yeah. there for too long. Whereas in property, people can, if they make a a mal investment, they can be stuck with that debt for five, ten, fifteen years. So it can be a very different outcome. Uh, still a bad one, but. Uh, yeah, it plays out a bit differently, I guess. The thing about property is too, there's just a bit of a different psychology, you know, like people can continue to pay the payments and if you continue to pay the payments, well, the bank is, the bank's not going to call you on. In yeah, margin, and also, you know, you, you, people tend to, you know, because you're not, you're not getting a daily quoted price shouted at you. you, you know, people tend to switch it off, you know, you know where the market's not doing great, but uh you know, you can you can choose not to look at it, and plenty of people do. If you're assuming you're taking a 10, 20 year view, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting takeaways from Morgan Housel's book on the psychology of money is that if you've got a strategy that you you think, even if it's not the the highest uh, annual return, but if you've got a strategy you know works and you can stick with it uh, for a long enough period of time, then compounding can work in your favour, um, and that's one of the reasons that people's family home has often done well for them, not not because it's necessarily been the best investment, but it's the one that they've actually stuck with uh, through the cycles, whereas it's, it's harder yeah. to do in stocks. You know, with all, the, with, with, it, with all the will in the world, you know, if you've invested in some uh, companies that drop 50%, it's very hard for people to stick with those. Yeah, yeah. I think... You know, like you say, the, the, there's a really good correlation or there's a strong correlation, you know, between margin lending and, and stock values. And, it, it, you know, you think about it, it makes complete sense. If you're borrowing money to buy stocks, well, the price is going to rise because you're bidding the prices up. Um, hence that reason why you don't get much volatility or you don't get much negative volatility because everyone's just continuing to bid up the price. The problem is, and I think we may have mentioned this in previous podcasts, is when the bank rings you and says, Steve, I want the money back, you know, and you've got to sell those shares. If they're bringing 1,000 to 10,000 to 100,000 people and saying, we want the money back, you've got to sell, you know, uh, or they'll sell it from under you. So that's when you get a really, really big problem because the institutions realise that if they actually margin call people, then it's actually, you know, they're going to get some defaults or they're going to crash the market. So, yeah, I'll look. Um, I, I actually did. I ran the the um, statistics from the RBA stats, and I, I think one of the things is that margin loans have, to some degree, been replaced by other forms of leverage. But certainly, in the cycle leading up to two thousand and seven, eight, it, I mean, it just it mirrored the market beautifully. It just went into a huge crescendo, and then margin loans just got annihilated, and they've never come back in the same volumes. Partly because people use CFDs and other other ways yes. to leverage these days, but I mean it's exactly what you said. Margin loans became more and more and more popular in the bull market, and then when the market crapped itself, uh, margin loans, as you said, the SMS messages came through. Please top up your account or 
more often people are selling and uh, those margin loans just evaporated very quickly. So I guess to wrap up on today then, so it, it sounds like very much in the the uh, the Grantham corner that, um, well, I think I saw a stat today that the, the, the market cap of US stocks, the GDP, is now at the highest level in history. And yeah, you, you can look at it and say, well, the Fed's supporting this, that and the other. But when you look at it, in that context, you just think, gee whiz, you know, that's not a great time to be heavily exposed to that market and probably all stocks. I'll end with a Buffett quote, which is, you know, the investing is about taking, you know, transferring the money from the inpatient to the patient. And I, I think really for, you know, look, 95% of us, the best thing to do is to be selling down on the way up, realising that it's going to give you the, you know, that basically annoy the hell out of you because, you know, the market will continue to go higher. But eventually the patience that you use um, from people like, you know, Jeremy Grantham and the valuation type investors, that they they win out in the long run. And they they don't win out in the long run because they're they're spectacular stock pickers. They generally win out in the long run because they avoid those big losses, which is what, you know, you and I talk about all the time by saying to people, you know, the first thing you want to think about is how do I lose money? As we say, you know, you look at the you look at the earnings yield on the, the S&P, okay, I understand interest and bonds are offering, you know, very little, but you'd feel fairly differently if I said, well, the earnings yield's at about two and the volatility is about 30 to 40%. That actually leaves you with a potential return of, you know, 0.6, which is actually lower than where bonds are. So for most people, you know, I think it's probably best just to, you know, rebalance their portfolio and the higher it goes to rebalance more and more to the point where you don't have a lot of money in, even if it's for, you know, one or two years, it'll stand you in good stead over about the next five or ten years when the bubble does eventually burst. Fantastic. Thank you, Steve, for your words of wisdom. So that's it for today. If you want to know some more, you can always check out the rest of the podcast series. We don't always talk about bubbles. We're just doing a little mini series, but you can go all the way back to the beginning where we talk a lot more about how we use the CAPE ratio and asset allocation and all the rest of it. So thanks for joining. Look forward to seeing you next week. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.